are some fun questions to kick this episode off. And the first sounds like a riddle. What has no feet, no brain, and can't strictly be considered a plant, an animal, or even a fungus, but is sometimes neon colored and is often prophetic? (laughs) Can authors and artists predict the future by writing or creating art? And is gardening a type of time travel? (laughs) If those are the kinds of questions that get you really pumped, you are in for a serious treat today because this is one of my favorite episodes so far. My name is Brandy. I'm the host of this show called This Plus That, where we connect the seemingly unconnectable and talk about why it matters. And my guest in this conversation is Ashley Jane Lewis. I followed her work closely for more than a year and worked for several months to get her on the podcast because I saw what she was up to and I thought, you know, this is the kind of person who has a brain like mine, not only into science and art, but constantly seeing the connections between everything and always interested in what nature and ecology and food and fermentation and everything can teach us about improving how we live, especially people who traditionally get left out of conversations about what they want the future to look like. Specifically, if you don't know her work, Ashley is a new media artist with a focus on Afrofuturism, bio art, social justice, and speculative design. Her artistic practice explores Black cultures of the past, present, and future through computational and analog mediums, including coding and machine learning, data weaving, microorganisms, and live performance. Listed in the top 100 Black women to watch in Canada, her award-winning work on empowered futures for marginalized groups has exhibited in both Canada and the U.S., most notably featured on the White House website during the Obama presidency. Her practice is tied to science and actively incorporates living organisms like slime mold and food cultures like kombucha and sourdough starters, a woman after my own heart, let me tell you, uh, to explore ways of decentralizing humans and imagining collective multi-species survival. Ashley is currently an artist in residence at Culture Hub NYC, as well as part of the Culture Futures track and the New Inc. Year 7 cohort, an art, design, and technology incubator run within the new museum. And you can read the rest of her bio in the description of this show and also in the show notes, of course. But today, you're going to hear us talk about the tensions between art and science, especially as a Black woman, how Ashley got into sourdough, sci-fi, and slime mold, what slime mold has to do with Black popular culture, and what it teaches us about gender, mutual aid, and immigration, and its incredible predictive properties, decentering humans in imagining the future, asking the question, if science fiction predicts the future, and most science fiction is written by white men, then what kinds of futures will we get? Or more accurately, what futures will we continue to get? And it's not just white men, right? It's just like, what are the kinds of futures we will get if we continue to hear stories told by the same kinds of people and leave out all kinds of other people, right? And we also talk about how Ashley is using AI as a science fiction tool to predict the future imagined instead by BIPOC folks, including a world beyond policing. Plus, let me tell you, just a whole host of other things related to food, fermentation, our ancestors, passing information generationally through time, writing as a prophetic tool, and so many geeky things that Ashley and I both love, which meant that inevitably there was absolutely no way I could contain our conversation into a title with just two things. Like I told her after we talked, 
It is incredibly difficult to mash black feminist science fiction, social justice, art, slime mold, ecology, writing, future telling, fermentation, and all the things into a simple X plus Y format. So please forgive the inaccuracy of the title of this episode, but I think the content of this conversation will more than make up for it. But before I get you into the talk, I just want to let you know a couple things. Uh, the opening quote I read is from Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. And the first half of the episode is pretty focused on science fiction, slime mold, and social justice. But the second half wanders all over the map where we get into all of those other things. I really considered breaking this episode into two, but... And I'm really, I'm really, really, really talking to my friend Drew Austin here, and I'm sure it applies to many of you. I assume that you can just hit the pause button if you need a break before getting into the second half when you're like, wait, what does this have to do with slime mold and social justice? They're talking about all kinds of other things. That's what happens. So smash the pause button if you need a break in between those things. Otherwise, just continue to run with Ashley and I all over the place as we talk about stuff that excites us. And I'm going to stop talking now because there's so much goodness in this episode. I want you to get into it. So enjoy the heck out of listening to it. Here it is, my conversation with Ashley Jane Lewis on slime mold plus social justice plus everything else. Tony Cade Bambara, a black feminist writer, organizer who left lots of wisdom for us, said two things that I turn to when I start to wonder if art is enough of a contribution. On one hand, as I referenced earlier, she said the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. On the other hand, she said that writing is one of the ways I participate in transformation. From this wisdom combination, I see that I'm, I'm charged to write about the revolutions I long for and that any writing I do, even if it isn't explicitly political, is still a transformative act. I apply this to my songs, my self-portraits, my poems, understanding that when a black, queer, thick artist woman intentionally takes up space, it creates a new world. And then in the next section, she says, I read sci-fi and visionary fiction as political, sacred, and philosophical text, and I engage with others who read it that way. I spent the first part of my life learning what history's victors wanted to tell me to believe about the past, including the simple assumption that it was the past. I see massive patterns of violence and inequality in history, which perpetuate in the daily news. Science fiction, particularly visionary fiction, is where I go to when I need the medicine of possibility applied to the trauma of human behavior. Um, so in that quote, I think, I feel Adrian sort of wrestling with this tension between art and activism. And I know she also often talks about sort of what Octavia, I think, calls being a hobby scientist, which I know you talk about often also. Um, and Kendra Kruger also calls that citizen science. She does a lot of like help sort of engaging the public in citizen science. And I'm, uh, one of the first questions I often ask is like, what tensions do you feel like you're holding in your life right now? But I feel like maybe the way I want to phrase it for you is like, do you often feel tensions between art and science and, um, I think activism as well. And like how you work, how, how you maybe work those out for yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think and I love that quote, by the way, also. Thanks for reading that. It's a nice one to return to. It, as you said, she has so many great quotes and um, I was expecting, I was not expecting that one. So that's that's cool to um, mm -hmm. be reminded of the significance of those words right now. 
Yeah, I think that there is just an abundance of tension. And I've felt that tension through my entire career and probably all the way through school, even as young as a child as well. Um, being uh, really, really basic and not nuanced at all, there is not a ton of overlap that I've experienced, whereas I can like walk into an art space as this identity um, and just talk about the sciences that make me very excited mm -hmm. or walk into a science space as this identity and talk about the arts that make me really excited. So mm -hmm. just on that own, that basic principle alone, um, there have been big waves of my life where I've leaned into one discipline or the other mm -hmm. um, to avoid that uh, friction because I think it's an amplified friction as a black woman, because I think that if you and I've and I know I have friends of this of this sort of discipline as well. If you were like a white man stepping into a science space and talking about art, you might also be seen as really, you know, uh, profound in lots of ways, you know. Totally. Yeah. Um, or if you're a white man walking into an art space offering all of this science, you might also be seen as somebody coming to this with a really unique positionality. But right. for me, innovative as a person, or totally yeah. but as a person who is already in an identity bracket that is less likely to be believed um in my experience you know there is this friction of like pulling from one space and, and trying to you know negotiate it in another um mm -hmm. so i think that that uh that is like ever present all the time and, and really um I'm sure there are many tiny ways in which I've tried to negotiate that within myself to be more like comfortable holding that tension or to be more comfortable, like occupying space in that tension. Mm -hmm. One of the really significant ways I've done it is just by the nature of finding other people who are trying to like wriggle their way in and then mm -hmm. forming like even just a mental community of people who are like, you know, yeah. occupying this space. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I think that uh, I've been really lucky to find people, but also I, I have been, there have been waves where I've been unlucky and in my head, I have formed this like tiny little ecosystem, like you're not doing this alone, like so-and-so you've never mm -hmm. met is also doing this. And this person over in this country who you've never met has is also doing this. It's like a way of cognitively um, permitting yourself to be in that space with more confidence. But it is, it is um, yeah, it's something only in the last four or five years that I think I've really reveled in so much as like, you know, started to abandon some of the anxiety that comes with it and starting to just like decide that this is what makes my work really special. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, um, if people, if people don't want to be a part of that, then they don't have to, nobody's forcing anybody to come to anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, you don't, you yeah. don't have to get it and it's okay if you don't get it. It's just not yeah. for you really. And then like one other quote from Adrian Marie Brown that really helped me reframe things too. Um, I'm looking at the book right now. She has like a compilation work um, of Octavia's, you know, ruminations on Octavia's uh -huh. work called Octavia's Brood. I'm sure you've right. heard of it. And in that, in that book, she has a quote that I'm not going to paraphrase super well, but it's around the scope of any act of community activism is an act of science fiction because it requires mm. you to imagine things you've not yet seen and decide that they're worth pursuing. Yeah. And that that to me has been so inspiring because I'm like, wow, like 
just in that one phrase, like here are all these webs between activism and art and tech and uh, science and technology sort of like smushed together with purpose, you know? Yeah. I was going to say too that, I mean, I think that's one reason why folks like Octavia and Grace Lee Boggs and Ursula yeah. K. Le Guin, like all these folks who came before us also sort of form that network of like, oh, I'm not the first. And also there are other people doing this thing. Mm -hmm. And even if you can't find local community that like we have people that have come before us and a lineage of yeah. sci-fi writers or, you know, activists that have been talking about mashing those things together for a long time. And I think also just that like Octavia, Octavia is one great example too of um, that sort of citizen science, right? That like, uh, and our hobby scientists, as she calls herself, I think um, that like, I think often as a person who writes and does art and um, like sort of more recently got into science that I always felt sort of like a fraud, you know, going into science spaces. But I yeah. think um, there's so much around that, not just with like experience, but also class and race and, you know, a hundred other identity things that like yeah. not everyone gets access to scientific spaces or to academia or whatever. And so sometimes like the power and just sort of claiming a space for yourself and going, no, mm -hmm. I get to claim myself as a scientist in this way, because what am I doing other than experimenting and, you know, like, like scientists do, which is imagining right. alternatives for a future or explanations for the universe that require a great deal of creativity. And when you don't have right. access to certain things, you sort of have to access your creativity in that way. You're like, I'm going to work with what I've got. So, uh, here we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. And also, you know, one of the things that's um, that really needs to be dismantled in the sciences is, is how people are, you know, stamped with this like un unmarkable like approval mm -hmm. to engage with sciences, you know, and I think that um, I think access is a really important part of that conversation. I also think like folding in the conversation of what is true or not is a really important part of that conversation uh, in the class that I'm teaching at the SFPC. Mm. Um, we're reading right now Robin Wall Kimmerer's uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. And we just got to this chapter called A Council of Pecans. Inside of this chapter, um, you know, Robin talks about this uh, scientific history of the pecan tree and the ways in which it um, is is like mapped across like a, a, a span of space. Um, and, and in that mapping is totally omitting the, the people who carried these nuts as they were being basically mm. upheaved from indigenous people being upheaved from one location to another and, and like, you know, using this nut as food and dropping nuts or planting nuts along the way that becomes this tree line. And mm -hmm. so, you know, um, we've been talking in this class about how we would how we would center cultural truths and personal truths in alignment with scientific truths. And I think one mm. of the reasons why um, it's really hard for people like me to just step into the sciences and be, and be seen with respect is because I think I am bringing with me as well as many other people like myself are bringing with me cultural truths and, and personal truths to hold in the same respect as the scientific truths. Because mm -hmm. I, I really do believe that like sciences have been um, you know, intentionally omitting all kinds of sociological histories and, um, you know, race and gender based histories that right. contribute to their 
um, their like plant matter that they're researching or the like, you know, ecological structure that they're researching. And that's not a super welcomed um, because it challenges the like highest form of truth. It's not a super welcome philosophy to bring into science unless you find the right science community, you know? Totally. When and where, like, how did you get into all of this work in the first place? Where did you come to this? Did you just like stumble across a book that changed your world or what's the story? It's a good question. I, I wish I had like a better memory of it all. <laughs> it feels like it's just been so, uh, both like fictitious and fluid. So in, and I, and people ask me this question a lot and I feel like I tell a different story every time. And I feel like all those stories are it. true, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but yeah, maybe just like all happened in tandem somehow. But basically my answer to it is that, you know, in, uh, as a child, I was really, really into science and super into um, biology, especially. And that really got stamped out of me in high school. I was like not mm. the prime candidate for who they wanted to see in the sciences. Um, I didn't ask the right questions. And by that, I mean, I think I was asking really good questions, but they weren't welcome to the textbook of like knowledge that we had to right. uphold. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't really welcomed in this. I didn't feel internally as like, you know, a, a kid that did really well in school, like was not feeling like welcomed into the sciences, um, and, uh, was always super welcomed into the arts. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that I was sort of destined to come back to science in some way because, uh, I feel like if you're if you're curious if your curiosity existed as a kid you will one day find yourself back in that world you know yeah um with great joy I would say um so anyways I think in my in my uh career like coming out of high school decided to go into a new media art background which is like technology and art and that felt really cool to me and it was a super shocking surprise that that required me to learn to code um, that's how I made my first friend is that I was like crying in the bathroom as we were like, like went on break between our first coding lesson. And then like, a friend I empathize of mine. with that. Well, yeah. and then I ended up loving it. And so this is like the crazy part about it is that through code, I started to love like speed and gravity and slope and like some of the other sciences mm. that I had been omitted from. And so mm. it started to open my eyes a little bit about the idea that like, oh, maybe there are pockets of science that are for me. I hadn't like quite made, way, made my way back to biology yet, but those things show up in biology too. And so through code, I was like building little robotic structures running across the floor and like really into the like calculations that came with that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the ways that I came back to math too, because I hated math prior to that. But um, yeah, I started working in um, activism oriented technology spaces. So like ran a girls coding program for a while and then ran like quite a number of guerrilla style technology programs for black youth um, mm -hmm. and then specifically black female youth. And, you know, the list kind of goes on and on in that way. Like went to like got a lot of funding from Google and went to Johannesburg and had all these great experiences that were like very, very strictly like technology, art and activism. Uh -huh. But at the same time, I was very stressed. <laughs> it's like full <laughs> pedal on the gas. And something that had always brought me a lot of comfort was baking. So I signed up for these baking courses at yes. the local college <laughs> and then ended up completing a diploma like in baking with a specialization in fermentation, um, which I decided was super cool because it let you talk about molecules and bacteria. And all of a sudden you were talking about these little creatures that you couldn't see without a microscope. Yeah. And it felt so scientific. Um, and so uh, that 
through food is the way that like my, my world came back to science and truly, and this is like the fun part of the story is that truly these things would have continued to stay disparate in less, like if I hadn't have gone to this one workshop at InterAccess, mm-hmm. um, there's this instructor there. Her name is Sarah. She's like fabulous. She was teaching a slime mold workshop and slime mold had a lot of properties to the kind of like sourdough activities. So I was like curious about it. It was in this like art gallery that I was familiar with. So it felt very safe. And like she handed slime me. Mold is, slime mold's formation is similar to the way sourdough structures happen. Ish, but mostly that um, the movement, the like patterns of movement were similar to my knowledge at the time. I was like new to slime mold, but the way it was described, I was like, oh, it sounds like these cells physically move in a way that's similar to the way that like lactobacteria moves in in, uh, sourdough. So that was like where my head was at and was just curious. And I was a big fan of this new media art gallery having like come from technology arts. In our introductions in this workshop offhand, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really into science sort of because of food, but I really love science fiction. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know why I'm telling you all this, but I'm really, these are some of the disconnected things I'm really interested in. It's actually perfect because I'm a, well, go ahead. I'll I'll let you finish. Well, well, the instructor handed me this article by Amy Lee Bang, and it was like an article that talked about Octavia Butler being a hobby scientist studying slime mold. And it was the first time that like wow. all of these worlds had come together for me. Yeah. Um, and so like, if I hadn't gone to that workshop, I think it would have taken me ages to get to this place because I just had never come across the information in all the years of studying Octavia Butler and reading her work. I'd never come across the information that she was into looking at things under a microscope to inspire her artistic work. And so it was like a real like synergistic moment where everything sort of aligned. And then it was just a matter of like feeling out who else cared about this stuff you know yeah totally yeah I was gonna ask ask actually at the beginning if you do you know who Asia Dorsey is yes yeah 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 so Asia was my fermentation mentor I actually worked one-on-one with Asia for a bit of time while she was still running five points fermentation here in Denver and um yeah so I, I mean, I've been into food for a really long time, but fermentation just was like an instantly mystical art also totally. that was like, it was, it was scientific, but it was also spiritual and mystical and that, you know, yeah. like when you can't see certain things that are happening behind the scenes and they're doing this transformation work that like is out of your control really, but you're like collaborating with this unseen force sort of to, to create, you know, like you combine a couple things together and they become something else entirely. Like there's just, um, there's so much metaphor, I think, and crossover in fermentation that has yeah. never not been a source of like writing and like inspiration and all kinds of things for me. So that makes totally. so much sense. Yeah, totally. I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the work of Alex um, uh, Ketchum or Maya Hayes, but they literally have written work that is entitled like fermentation as metaphor and talk about the agents of change and, and a, you know, Canadian reference, Lorraine Fournier as well, mm. talks about um, fermenting feminism and just talking mm. about the like agitation of, of agents of change that are bacterial and like what yeah. we can learn about that to pursue um, feminist revolution. And it was a big inspiration for me. It's like part of the, I've been running these, um, fermenting a revolution workshops for a while. And they also try to explore how does 
this unseen structure that seems to have a lot of like ebbs and flow and like collaboration, if you will, like allow to personify it. How did, how can we scrape that and learn from that in order to pursue a little bit more um, social justice for ourselves? Yeah. So, okay. So talk to me more about slime mold first also. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it seems like, like once you found out about that at that workshop, you got really into the idea of slime mold. Like what is it about <laughs> slime mold that's super inspiring to you? Yeah. You know, there's, it's hard to know where to start because aesthetically it is so alarming <laughs> as something that exists in nature. It is, it comes in so many colors, but a very common version that is studied in labs and in art practices is neon yellow. Like just imagine dystopian, like creature from the lagoon yellow. Yeah. And so, you know, alone there's a curiosity in me that's like it's drawn to it just by the fact that it's supposed to be this ecological decomposer and yet like how are you operating in the forests with this extraordinary vibrancy yeah like you're um, not hiding at all like most no. creatures in the forest yeah yeah exactly um and so I think that's really you know one thing that drew me drew me to it initially but also I think its history is really interesting it's had so many waves of popularity which means it's had like peaks and valleys of funding it's like mm. fallen off the popularity train and then come come back and, and the reason why is because there's a little bit of mysticism around it the categorizations that have followed it it's a fungi it's a mold have been debunked like decade after decade after mm. decade it still fits oddly on the animal kingdom and um i think it's really curious that a lot of people who are black start to talk about the waves of like black popular culture and falling off the popularity chain mm. and like waves of funding and then like mm. being like sort of like omitted from popular discourse and so um that is kind of like a cool combination of worlds and 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 discussion but as a species as an organism it is fascinating because it has hundreds of expressions of gender or sexuality. It's got a, uh, a distributed method of nutrients. So it's um, unlike most creatures where the cells that are fastest and strongest and arrive at the food first get to feed first in order to continue its ability to thrive. The, the, the fastest, strongest cells eat last in these slime mold structures. They like send nutrients mm. down the pipeline, down to the back to feed all of the cells that are weakest, which I think is really cool. And its ability to have no centralized brain, but still have predictive, predictive properties. It has like memory retention in a lot of ways. Um, um, Catherine uh, Barnett talks a lot about this, this, these studies that were done where like a Petri dish underneath a fan that went off at like 3 p.m. every day, but not on the last day. And the slime mold still reacted and like retracted away from the, from the dehydrating fan. So it has this ability to like hold on to information, even though it has no centralized brain, um, which is I think why a lot of uh, technological labs are trying to use it to map out like most efficient subway patterns like they did in Japan or, uh, you know, solving maps um, and uh, comparing that to the ways in which computational algorithms and AI can perform. And so it's really cool to me that there's like this creature, no brain, like no consistent information necessarily about where it lives on the animal kingdom has all of this inherent wisdom around things that we just as humans socially can't figure out or as humans technologically are still trying to puzzle through. So it, it's a fascinating organism to me. Yeah. There's yeah. Again, like there's so much metaphor there. It, you could just go on forever. Yeah. I think that there's a lot about slime mold that can help us learn 
how to be more empathetic with one another. I think there's like a tongue in cheek way of approaching this, that if this, I, I, I hold quite a lot of respect for slime mold, but if this organism can figure out distributed <laughs> nutrients, Surely what, we what, can. Surely, surely we can figure it out. Can't be rocket science. I mean, this 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 organism holds like so much information. So like maybe it's just like heads and tails above what we're possible of conceiving. But come on, right? And so, you know, it's it's at the core empathy, especially, and what we can learn from slime mold about empathy is at the core of the work um, that I uh, have as a collaborator with both slime mold and an artist named Io Consiende. We have a project called the Slime Tech Lab. It's uh -huh. literally a mobile lab. Um, there's a Google uh, interview coming out about it in a, in a little bit. Um, and essentially, this is something we like rove around New York, mostly for communities of color, to talk via slime mold as like an agent for conversation to talk about um, challenging subject matter like immigration and, you know, moving across great distances because slime mold does have this like, you know, ability to have like a, a really interesting pattern of movement mm -hmm. um, or, or like uh, mutual aids and like new mm -hmm. networks of, of food distribution. And so what we've learned in that process, this is a hunch we had, but has been proven pretty much time and time again, is that if we were to have these conversations Without slime mold, I think we would have success, but it would take a while to get people comfortable. But because we have this conversation in collaboration with and centering slime mold, people have this people have this um, instinct to feel something for it. It's small. It's interesting. It's made up of all of these cells. These cells are doing things that are nuanced and 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 just like outside of the realm of what we imagine. This living thing has an extension of empathy that makes the conversations a lot deeper, a lot faster, mm -hmm. a lot more compelling, and people share in more vulnerable ways. And so that is something that I think is not directly tied to what we can learn from slime mold, but certainly fascinating um, in the way that we have hard conversations, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I know you talk about how I think it's like 87% of our technology or something yeah. was actually originally imagined inside of science fiction. That's right. Yeah. Which is a fascinating stat. I want to know more about that. But mm -hmm. I think that, um, yeah, one of the things I've heard about science fiction is that like, it's like you have to have just enough of, of some sort of existing reality so that people have a grounding to it to like really yeah. be able to understand so that you're mixing both like a vision for the future, but also enough of what someone can grasp as like real mm -hmm. um, so that they're not completely ungrounded. And I think there's something about um, your, what you're saying is that like, you know, it, it might take you a lot longer to get people comfortable with the idea of mutual aid or these other metaphors and ways that slime mold teaches us how we can be. Um, if you didn't have slime mold, mold as an example, but like actually grounding something in a present reality, even though it's like a very, like you a sort of bizarre organism, right? It's like neon or whatever. It's mm -hmm. still something that I think ties us close enough to our present day world, but goes like something is giving us enough of both this world, but also what the future world can hold yeah. that it becomes like more real for people. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's an interesting, um, kind of summary of that. I, I want to agree. I think that 
Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a surprise to me because when we're talking about immigration and we're talking about mutual aid or mutual care as well, we are talking about it from the human context. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that a group of humans (laughs) could find some kind of way to tap in to that really quick. But I think getting a glimpse of a networked object that thinks, I'm sort of like using like air quotes because it's like a, that's a human phenomenon, right? Um, That, that performs in, in new, yeah, that performs in, in ways that are unlike and and more progressive, if you will, than the way that we perform. It does give Mm -hmm. us a glimpse as to what the future or even the tandem timelines could be, right? This, this organism isn't something from space. It's happening right around us. It's like probably, you know, hanging out in the forest nearby my house. And so I think that there's like this cool thing about seeing something act in ways that are more progressive than us in real time, in tandem to our timeline, that is Mm -hmm. totally like a little, almost like a little Petri dish portal into the future of what we could be as a society, you know? So it is special that it's not completely imagined that it is real and it is special that it's something we haven't tapped into as a human race right now yeah yeah it's hard I'm I'm sort of with you and like I have a hesitation around like sort of fully getting on board with that idea only because like you know um you actually have a quote from one of your talks the idea of what we're engaging with right now can't be limited by what we think is possible logistically Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I think that's the sort of beauty of science fiction. And, and I think also like black liberation and black solidarity and people of color that like for so long have been like, we don't have a sense of reality right now that looks anything like we, what we want the future to look like. So I don't want to sort of be tied to something that would ground me into present day reality because it doesn't really serve me. Mm-hmm. And the present day reality is also a biased narrative all on its own, right? I mean, yeah. like major narrative is not a narrative written by me, major media narrative, like all of these things are are like it's that's why it's really important i think for people who are like black or or female or like queer or trans is to like find that pathway of narrative that is for you that is by you as well right mm-hmm. that is by people who um are connected to what you believe in and who you are because it also helps you like tap out of all of the like dismay and like just stereotyping cloaked um rhetoric of major narratives those Mm -hmm. things are in a lot of ways like a part of the reality that we live but it's also not the full definition of who we are and so you know there has to be some kind of combination otherwise when it is to the great benefit of colonized colonized based structures or colonizers as well that we feel dismayed by the situation that we live in because then we'll Mm -hmm. never have the we'll never have the like gumption or energy to you know act and 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 form and create traction for the things that we really want right so it has to be right. sort of like a combination but you but you have to be able to tap in and hear the things that are about you for you and in favor of you and excited about your existence too right <laughs> yeah totally that's why when in times of dystopian whatever or dictatorship that they come for art first because yeah, the first exactly. thing they want to is is to remove your imagination because if you yes. can't imagine a different world then you're not going to fight for it absolutely absolutely and that's you know i'm so glad you brought that up because absolutely and, and and it's definitely it's like going back to this pecan tree um chapter is like taking away you know talking about 
the indigenous communities that were like moved from like Oklahoma and moved from Texas and just like kept being upheaved in in like mm. horrific ways in the name of trying to like get all of the children into these um, into these residential schools. You know, th- there was not a lot, there was no song allowed, no dance allowed. All of the arts mm. were ways of like channeling that in th- that like internal um, tenacity, mm-hmm. that internal spirit. And those were, of course, mm-hmm. the first to go. It's a American and Canadian timeline, you know? Yeah. yeah. You also mentioned uh, at some point in sort of describing slime mold centralized or centering slime mold. And I know you talk about decentering humans in yeah. your conversations. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think. Um, this comes up a lot in our in our classes as well, like the classes that we teach for the Slime Tech Lab and for um, the School for Poetic Computation, really anywhere. I think that there's like um, a, a reality check we kind of need as a human race to pull ourselves out, even just for 10 minutes of the major narrative of how we're envisioning change, futures, existences. You know, I think that a lot of science fiction does talk about and does show us, um, you know, the incredible flaws of humans that that don't let us make it off the ship or don't let us make it off the planet, but like all these other species do. And I think that's kind Mm. of like a fun part about um, science fiction that is like, uh, you know, a great point of reflection. I think in practice right now, um, I think that there is an extraordinary amount of learning that can come um, in getting out of the way of the wisdom that other species and other creatures have to show Mm us. And also centering ourselves at the middle of the narrative, uh, the middle of like every point of like opportunity to learn. It just, it it prioritizes like the way that we think specifically, the way that we communicate specifically, the Mm -hmm. way that we like house and hold ourselves specifically. And I think that means that like, you know, we miss out on all of the really beautiful nuance that other species hold in the way that they engage with one another. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's also just like, we've centered humans so far and look at our survival, you know, again, in air quotes, maybe it's time for a different model of considering how we like bring other species up to the same sort of importance that we hold for ourselves. Like, you know, I think that there's, um, there is an argument that like all that we, that all these species have just as much um, reason to be here as we do. And so, yeah, I think there's the slightly more human centered way of saying like, we should learn from these other creatures so that we can be better, but also like, you know, we, we're reaching a brink of climate change. That means that we're going to be um, creating great peril for a lot of other species. And so we need to start making some space for them to hold similar kinds of significance in the way that we organize, make policy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, let's go back to immigration. Cause I, I'm, I don't want to sort of finish with slime mold before we talk about immigration. Like what are the overlaps there? Cause we didn't really go into that. Yeah. So uh, there are so many beautiful pieces of art that have created um, agar agar landscapes. Agar agar is this like nutrient substrate that usually sits at the bottom of a Petri dish for you to add your organism onto so that it stays hydrated and and Mm. stays healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of artists who have been making these really elaborate Petri dishes, if you will, that have like topographical landscape that is like Mm. raised and has valleys and, and, and the whole purpose is to recreate the kind of like patterns of people's movement from one space to another, especially people in turmoil. Like 
you know, there's a lot of work around the like Mexico US border that's been mm-hmm. built into agar agar uh, petri dishes and then inoculated with like food sources for slime mold. And then, um, you know, observed as slime mold makes that journey across that like mini mountain range. And, uh, uh, you know, that conversation once again, opens up all of this um, beautiful nuance and comfortability with talking about immigration because we're watching like all these like poor little creatures go across this <laughs> terrain to get to from one end to the other. And then as we start to feel empathy for that little creature, we start to extend that empathy out to the people who have to make that journey in like, you know, great distress to put it really, really lightly. And so, um, yeah, I think that they're like, you know, in following that, um, my collaborators collaborators and I have really worked with Slime Mold to talk about like movement patterns and like, you know, as people move um, and immigrate from one place to another, like how, like how do you seek food and like, where are you getting your resources and um, how these things are also predictable by modern technology and algorithms that can, you know, try to determine where people will be in order to move, remove resources. And so, um, yeah, I think that there's uh, the idea that we can see a creature make decisions that might mimic the decisions that we make, I think creates all of this really interesting discussion around like how we preserve the, the possibility for people to get from one place to another safely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I just remember too, what I was going to say earlier, which is like, uh, it makes so much sense to me that slime mold is uh, an organism that sort of uh, refuses to be categorized. Yeah, it is sort of by nature of this plus that organism, you know, totally, um, totally. Yeah, both animal and fungi and (laughs) all the above, you know, which I like you were saying, it just makes um, it says so much for the way that we hold empathy around talking about gender or Mm -hmm. like expression in any shape or form. And I think identity across the board, not just gender um, and sexuality, but being able to go like, what is it to like? how about we sit first of all with our uncomfortable like our discomfort I guess in what it means to see an organism reflect to us something about being fully both or fully more than one thing so not um you know not not just one or the other or neutralized even like Asia Dorsey talks about this a lot that often in culture what we're trying to do um, or what ends up in mainstream is sort of trying to neutralize right um what happens so in gender conversations that it's not you know, male and female and X, Y, and Z, it's, you know, androgyny or you yeah, know, something right. that's like in the middle or whatever. And, um, and instead goes, what is it to be fully both masculine yes. and feminine and, right. you know, the whole spectrum? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there is, um, just a lot in slime mold that demonstrates that possibility. I think in, in biological ways that we would have a hard time mimicking fully, but uh, yeah. because like all of those cells are, it's almost as if they could do whatever they want. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's one of the exciting things around it too, is also in learning about this through the sciences in learning about this organism and building respect for its properties, um, it makes sense to start to build more respect for similar properties in human beings as well, right? If we can yeah. feel awe about, feel in awe about all of the ways in which slime mold expresses, expresses sexuality, then like 
you know, we're not, we're a little bit closer to feeling like appreciation and awe and like acceptance for all of the ways in which human beings express sexuality as well. Right. And so it's just like walking a little bit closer, but it is always kind of funny to me that this faceless creature has this capacity to build all of this empathy for us, because for a long time, um, there was a lot of studies that really talked about how for us to feel empathetic to the struggle or the lifestyle of a creature, they have to exhibit some of the features that we have. Mm. And I've just like not seen that to be very true in all of the ways that we've been working with slime mold, which couldn't be Mm. physiologically more different (laughs) than us, you know? (laughs) We are not neon yellow. No, I wish. Imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If only, maybe one day. Yeah. Um, I love also the idea of predictability because I think um, you use AI and technology in that way also. Like I loved, um, is it opening the portal, your project where you talk about sort of feeding in text from black and, you know, BIPOC folks and the machine itself sort of spits out ideas for new futures based on what's been inserted. Is that right? Yeah. 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 This is a project that Culture Hub helped me get started and this is, it's like a, like a, like a prophecy machine, like something that is telling you the thesis statement, if you will, of like many sci-fi books and the, the, it's based off of an, um, an AI model. Um, and so a machine learning model. And so this, uh, machine learning model was initially fed, like I fed it pure canon. And if you're looking at science fiction canon, it's like almost 100% white and male. Um, and so it's, <laughs> yeah. So like by convention, funny, but not funny. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, but by convention, that would mean that all of the predictions of the future, these prophecies from the future are written with the intention of like continuing the white male narrative. Like it, it really is written and designed by white males right. talking about this. So the objective is really to hold workshops. And I, I've been holding these workshops to write science fiction with black and brown and people of color, indigenous people of color, and feed those stories um, into the machine learning models so that over time, the prophecies from the future that we get are like closer to what a prophecy would be if it was like written for us and by us. And so just watching that shift over time has been really interesting. And so um, it's also been a great way to connect with other science fiction writers of color um, as I build out my own like micro library of, of published work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I also love, sounds like sort of a similar project that investing in futures beyond policing that happened after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna yeah. Taylor and um, just the, you know, the point you made, which is about, um, I think in a talk when you were discussing it, you were saying that it, like the folks in that came up with more than 50 models of how life would look like without policing. And it's so interesting to me because I think, you know, one of my last conversations was with someone, um, Deacon Rada on, uh, economics and design. And so often when we're talking about economics, everyone only has like oh, it's only either capitalism or socialism. And I think mm-hmm. similarly in policing, it's like, well, what would we do without that? Yeah. Like, who, who would I call <laughs> if something went wrong? Right. And the idea that like one small group of people, I mean, it was a large group of people, it sounds mm-hmm. like, but mm-hmm. in general, like relatively, it's a small group relatively. of people came up with at least 50 yeah. ideas for what community could look like without police. And that's so fascinating. And the idea of, 
I think integrating AI with that is so fascinating to me. I think I tend to yeah. be sort of a, like, a, I don't know if Luddite is the right word, but I'm sort of a future technology um, adverse, possibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mostly because I think the way that it's often talked about is usually in the hands of white men or like sort of totally. for things that I feel like are for profit or sort of a future yeah. I just like don't really have an interest in. Yeah. Um, and so the idea that we might actually be able to use AI and technology for that kind of good and like imagining stuff beyond even what we can do at a human capacity in our brains is like, is so fascinating. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for, and thanks for that great overview that, that, um, that great description of uh, investing in futures. It, it is, it is a bit, you know, I feel of both minds that it is a bit unbelievable that we created all of these worlds, but also it is super believable because a lot of the principles that went into designing these worlds are based on things that people are already doing, you know? And so mm-hmm. that investing in futures beyond policing was like such a beautiful effort. Um, you know, uh, myself and Netta Bomani um, really kind of like spearheaded it, but there was like just so many incredible collaborators and just, you know, Lydia Jessup and Marina Zerkow and um, Sarah Rothberg and just just so many people, Kadra Mensa. Anyways, just like a huge team of people just on the fly coming together to decide that there was this tiny crack in the wall of funded police. And there was this small opportunity to have meaningful discourse around how our societies would look with if we defunded police, what would we do? And so, you know, it's just, it's just like the speculative designer in me is like, oh my gosh, like if we don't, if people of color don't come to some point like if we don't come into the conversation and say, well, this is what we need instead, this is what we want instead, we'll just get a different version of police. That's what's happened. You know, police are, are uh, recreations of like slave patrol, like recreations of like all kinds of like, you know, often like black and indigenous, uh, you know, punitive measures that have existed throughout history. Like mm-hmm. it will just get spewed out in another way. That's like community <laughs> officer or some kind of nonsense like that is right. like still the same thing. Prison will look like prison in another way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, those conversations, we, we ran them for nearly a year. Um, each session, there were four worlds built and all of these wonderful people like Fred Moten and Ruha Benjamin, um, jumped in to help us like imagine these things together. And and so the the cool thing about those conversations is that people were given like real world, real world stakes, but also the opportunity to imagine things that were like incredibly impossible, like completely speculative and then draw back, okay, well, what, what are the features that we could slowly walk towards now um, or super realistic. And in the mm-hmm. small breakout rooms, people were just talking about the incredible, brave, super tangible ways that their individual community was operating in measures of care. And so those got extrapolated out into like systems that could be applied to a whole community. Um, They were emergent, as you might say. Totally, totally. Exactly. And so that I think, plus like a little bit of humor here, a little bit of imagination here, a little bit of like texture and visuals, I think Mm -hmm. it it left everybody feeling very inspired to start Mm -hmm. to think about how, you know, if the ultimate goal is worlds, is a world we live in without police, and they're fathomed upon like small things that we're doing as a community, let's keep walking backwards so that we can walk slowly towards those worlds. So what are the tiny things we can do now? Mm. What are the ways that we can bridge with other communities to make those tiny things a little bit bigger? What are the ways that we can like, exactly, which is like right back to slime mold, right? These like Mm -hmm. kind of fractal nodal points of of information and and behavioral patterns. Um, 
Yeah. So that, that project probably stands to be one of the most meaningful that I feel like I've ever participated in because was, we, we ended up um, engaging with over like 500 people, most of which were strangers, 99% were black people in this moment where it felt like all we could really do is engage. You know, you had no other choice. It's happening right around you. It's not, it's not hypothetical. It's, it's reality right now. Mm -hmm. And it's cool to match reality that's heavy and dark and burdensome with imaginative play for purpose, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, totally. And actually speaking of like emergent strategy and like fractal behavior, I was going to ask like, is slime mold actually, um, have you seen it work at scale? Like, does it actually grow fairly large? Mm. Like mycelia? Like, have we seen it actually um, sort of model for us what it might be to do, you know, smaller behaviors like that sort of mutual aid, but then like grow itself out to larger community? Yeah, I mean, mycelium certainly has in my research a greater capacity to cross huge distances. And I think that's mostly because it's subterranean. Um, So people have found mycelial networks that are just like kilometers Right. Um, making my Canadianness known right now, miles, <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever. Whole continents are large, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because because there is a, a way to do that and experience slightly less human uh, obstruction, right? But um, you know, slime mold reaching such extraordinary distances. I mean, will inter will inter it will be obstructed by like roads or sidewalks or things like mm-hmm. that, just human, human interference, you know, yeah. being stepped on maybe. <laughs> um, and so, or just animal interference. So I, right. I haven't seen like, if I'm sure the research is out there, it's a question I haven't like pursued super deeply, but um, I know that some of the limitations are that like, there is just so much that we've done to disrupt forests that make it hard for these things to grow above ground yeah. so far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also like, I, you know, I don't know, this is just me sort of riffing and also my own sort of experience of this. Like, I think part of my question, my sort of active question that I live with is like, is scale actually necessary? Like, have we actually grown beyond scale? Should we actually sort of go back to smaller scale? And is that part of what would make us more sustainable? Um, Yeah. So maybe in that way, slime mold actually does teach us something about what it means to, you know, do mutual aid and all those other practices in a sustainable way. Right. Well, if, if we're referencing, you know, historical cultures that have operated in tribes and operated in like small communities. I mean, scale hasn't always been necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a friend uh, and colleague, Neta Bumani, who talks all the time about how scale is uh, is connected to capitalist intentions. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we want to scale? Is it for right. dominance? Is it for ego? Is it for like, you know, maximizing the resources uh, in, in ways beyond our means? Like, what does it mean to scale? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are really great questions. And I see less functionable, I, less, I see less functioning like networks that are huge than I do networks that are small, you know? Yeah. And I think like the, the smallness of it, the, the unscaled versions also let you deepen your relationship to the individual, like who they are, what their needs are, how those needs can be met. This yep. is the, this is the like, know your neighbor ethos that like right. I've seen most dramatically functioning, functionable in, in Bed-Stuy, for instance, it's like just mm. this like tiny pocket network of care that edges up against another tiny pocket network of care. And that's how, you know, these, these communities really continue to thrive, you know? Yeah. Bed-Stuy in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Yeah. In New yeah. York. Yeah. I was going to ask like why we need black queer women yeah. to get into science fiction. Also. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, yes. So I, I get this question a lot and I also ask this question a lot and I hate and love this question because <laughs> this is like, it, I think the reason why I hate it is because it pulls up a little post-traumatic stress from being like, mm -hmm. there was a chapter in my life where I was just, you know, advocating for um, diversity in tech. Mm -hmm. um, and I got the question all the time, like, well, why should black people be in technology? And I felt like it was just such an like such a big question. question. Oh my God. It was such an, like, what could we possibly offer that we don't already have at the heart of white male technology? And so, yeah. So I feel like that it, there's like a little bit of like, oh, skin goes up from the mm. memories of having to answer like, well, <laughs> black people exist and they have things to add. And there's like, you know, nuance and wisdom and skill and all kinds of things there. But in this particular context, I feel like there's a a different answer in a lot of ways, because I think that they're the, you know, black queer women in science fiction. I mean, I think one way to answer that is to just look at the impact of people of that demographic already, like the ways in which Octavia Butler has, has really transformed much of our conversation, especially in the pandemic. It's, it's like funny to see that, uh, you know, a lot of us were looking at Octavia Butler, like well before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and everybody's reading Octavia Butler and everybody's talking about Octavia Butler's work, um, as, as like ways to, um, puzzle our way through this, especially books like Clay's Ark, which is about a virus. And, um, especially in the like weird ways in which, you know, um, Trump was like make America great again, which is a, which is a, a phrase of like a major character in Octavia Butler. My friend and I were just laughing about this the other day, like how funny it would be if like closeted and, and secretively Trump was like an Octavia Butler hyper fan, but was like, I can't <laughs> let my, I just can't ever let anybody know about that. And then one day he accidentally let it slip, like make America great again. All black people were like, hmm? and he was like, nothing. It's just, I made it up. It's fine. Like hides a curtain, a That's curtain amazing. of all his Octavia Butler originals. Anyways. <laughs> I mean, it would not be unlike uh, white culture to steal black culture for 100%, their own gain. Yeah. So, a hundred percent. Like, so, even if it's not, he's not a fan. The idea that even one of his like aides or someone who writes his speeches or you know whoever his PR team is who's yeah. coming up with his slogans was like, that's a good line. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I'll keep that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. All of that feels very plausible. Um, yeah, I think that the 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 whole topic about like why black women and black queer women should be at the center of science fiction. And it, it's tied to both that study that a huge proportion of our technology is based off of science fiction. And so mm -hmm. um, we should have people with identities that are um, intersectional, like really writing the things that become um, mainstream devices that we use. Yeah. Um, but also like, I think that there is, um, I think that there's like a, a real like multifaceted lens that I think black queer like feminists can provide because they feel the marginalization and oppression in so many different directions. And so I think that there's like, you know, not to put them on too much of a platform, but I do think that there is a lived experience that that could edge up against a lot of people that, and, and help a lot of people because it does like cross paths with so many different like individual identities you know yeah it's a burden for a lot of people but yeah it could, but it, if we reframe the way that we think about people with deeper lived experiences it could also be such an incredible gift to our framing of thinking yeah and i i think it's a like i hear the way you're i think i'm 
I hear the way you're hearing it. I think the way I was thinking about it was less from the framework of like, why should white wealthy, you know, like men, Mm -hmm. whatever, like the sort of opposite end of the spectrum of those three things, you know? Um, like why should they have, you know, us in their science Mm -hmm. fiction and more, why should we want to, you know, like, I think I'm thinking of more like what, yeah, like why, (laughs) why should black queer feminists, you know, um, like actually get into science fiction, like why Mm -hmm. science fiction even, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question too. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that I know the answer. I think that for me, I'm like, you know, I, I want black queer women to do whatever they want. <laughs> like, but it's like that, uh, you know, that kind of like viral meme. It's like, I support women's rights and I also support women's wrongs. <laughs> like do whatever, do whatever you want really. Because I think that for, you know, a long time, um, I was also pushing this whole, like black people need to get into technology. But I also feel like, you know, uh, the most optimal world for me is a place where like black queer women are doing exactly what they want to do without being told that a, they have to do that because that's right. the most like or obvious they yeah. mm-hmm. or that, um, or that we desperately need them to do that mm-hmm. to like save us right. or that's where the burden comes from. Yeah. Or that, you know, this is the only place where they're welcomed. I, I feel like the, the topia, I guess, not specifically dystopian or utopian, the like place I would like to live is like, if they're into it, then they should come on board. And if they're not, go do the other thing that you're really into because there are just so many barriers to like letting people do what they want to do, you know, because of who they are. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's right on is just that like the world we're fighting for hopefully is one where everybody gets to define what the world looks like for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you mentioned the, the sort of research around how um, a lot of technology that exists today was inspired by science fiction. What is that from? Yeah. You know, in my master's, um, thesis, I've come across a a whole combination of, um, studies coming out of Europe, the U S and Canada that tie technology to their origin point. Um, and so like, these are investigative, um, uh, ethnographic studies that try Mm -hmm. to figure out like what the features are of like an iPad, for instance, and where they might've emerged first, where the like Mm -hmm. components would emerge first and, Cool studies. Um, super cool studies, super, super cool studies. And, and, it, and, you know, just the sheer volume was shocking to me, sheer volume of technologies that have come out of science fiction was, was shocking to me too. I went in like with a hunch, I guess. And then yeah. it was like, oh, I was, I was thinking like 20%, yeah. <laughs> but it's like you just like everything from like the subway system to the credit card, to the like iPad, to like Google glass, like, uh, you know, the list mm-hmm. goes on, even to like the ways in which we imagine wi-fi or wireless devices Mm -hmm. and so um it it was shocking to me to see how extraordinary in volume that was but also just like oh it made me sick because i know that these like books and movies and films are produced by like white men and so you know it it's really a question that's you know, kind of sat with me since then, which is just like, who, who writes the future? And it's not even in like an imaginative, like speculative way. It's like literally written and literally existing decades later, sometimes just years later in the world that we operate. I'm like looking at all the technology around me right now and recognizing that it was like written into existence 
by a demographic that doesn't look like me? And what might it look like if it had been written by an Octavia Butler or NK Jemisin or, yeah. you know, like a Nettie Okafor, like what would they, what would they, how would it be different? How would it serve me differently or serve us as a society differently? You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I watched Dune last night even, and you know, it's a beautiful work. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a very specific point of view and, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's super specific point of view. But it's also a question of like, who's writing me into the future, you know, right. or who's writing my, like, uh, we've been using this word at the SFPC in my, um, sci-fi writing class, who's writing for my constellation, like all of the people that maybe not are blood related, but are like, you know, pieces of the things that I care about embodied in individuals who have yet to come, you know, this, like this, uh, constellation of people who are like, in ways touching upon the things that I care about the kin in that, in that, in that map, I'm um, like, who's writing for them, you know, like who's writing them into the future that becomes the technology that becomes the thing that's in our pocket, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, I, I mean, imagine I, if you were, if you ran a technology company, like it makes sense to me, of course, that why would you not just sort of scan through imaginative speculative work because it takes away a lot of the job that you have to do to imagine <laughs> right. something completely new so totally. um yeah but my, of course my friends then, and I are like always joking that these sci-fi companies aren't reading to the end of the book because a lot of the technologies are coming <laughs> out in like chapters one through ten and then they don't read to the end to see how it destroys humanity and they're like cool yeah. I'll make a company based on this and the end of the book has the lesson not like the cool flashy tech uh, at the beginning totally. <laughs> you know? are you excited right now yeah. Yeah. what are you working yeah. on so maybe right now or technology um, when we don't really think things about that you're sort of like newly mashing together even that would be really exciting to you or you're really excited about and also people that you're just really inspired by right now mm -hmm. whether it's like actual present day humans or past ancestors <laughs> or whatever that might be mm -hmm. yeah those are great questions yeah well I think that the stuff I'm working on right now I'm I'm really excited about some of the projects on the horizon I mean I'm trying to do a lot more writing in my in my work and mm -hmm. I think a lot of my work has begun as like chicken scratch writing on pages that have turned into like an art installation or have turned into like a like a video or have turned into a workshop but they are based on like the storytelling that I think I'd like to explore more deeply as stories <clears throat> and so that's one of the things that's really exciting about this SFPC the school for poetic computation class because it is like the whole experimental class is around building a um, like a practice of writing that draws upon sciences from people of color in those industries and draws upon mm -hmm. science fiction from people of color as well. Um, and so, you know, we're, I just signed a contract to have an, uh, like just almost indefinite iterations of this course at the SFPC. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and it's really lovely because each course ends in a, in a publication, like a, a printed oh, book wow. with the cool. student work. Yeah, so it's it's really wonderful to write together and read together. And that intimacy, I think, is something I've been missing from a lot of the work in the pandemic as well. Like mm -hmm. Investing in Futures had that in folds. But it's really rare to find the right combination. As I said in 
I think the Instagram posts we just sort of referenced, the right combination of like people, place and tasks that feels like intimate, you know, mm-hmm. um, in your work. And so I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm doing some writing for a couple of like black centered magazines and um, uh, just really trying to find other ways similar to that quote you've read aloud, some other ways to sort of like build transmissions of these thoughts that I think are are showing up in, in various ways in my like non um, conventionally written work, you know? Yeah. And I, <clears throat> just to interject about writing, I mean, one of the reasons I love writing so much is because it is, um, it is sort of like a prophetic art. I mean, I, there's someone here in Denver, uh, Utimia Cruz Montoya, who's, um, who knows Asia and <clears throat> sort of that group of friends. And, um, she once said, actually, I think it was in a social permaculture design course with Kendra that um, mm. I think I heard her say, like, words are prayer. Mm. And I think there is a way in which uh, writing writing the future is a prayer. It's an act of yeah. hoping for something, like you said, sort of toward the beginning. It's a hope for something that's not yet seen. Right. And writing for me differently than any form of, you know, um, maybe sculpture or other like physical art form or something. And I mean, I guess you can make arguments, of course, for all of it, right? Like painting, all those are all (laughs) forms of sort of prayer or, you know, especially if they're speculative, like they're, they're ways that we're hoping for something that's not yet here. Um, But I think there is something really cool to me about writing that feels like a lineage of prophetic tradition. And also, um, so it's like, I mean, just what you're talking about at the School of Poetic Computation, right? It's like reaching back into the past, sort of continuing a lineage of people who have done that and now are writing into the future of like, what can we then pull forward into the present? Um, So yeah, I love writing in that way because I think there is really something mystical about language and words. And I mean, that's where also I find a lot of overlap with like coding and that sort of, you know, like it is a language and in that way it's also can be, and even in AI, like that's sort of a prophetic tradition also. Yeah. Um, So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that there's like, maybe, you know, I just love that this is connected to ancestors because it's on the forefront of my mind because we've been talking about it and talking about the class I'm teaching. They're really into ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk a lot about like, what, what would it mean? What kind of ancestor do we want to be thinking about ourselves Mm -hmm. at like one point in a timeline and who might we serve with our knowledge of today for a better future for even just like a different future yeah um and 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 it has me really thinking about um oral histories mm-hmm. and written histories of my matriarch specifically I, mm. I feel like um really lucky and I'm sure lots of people have this experience too to be tied to like a, a really strong sort of backbone of matriarchs mm. and so I think that like you know to me it has me thinking about the oral traditions I have one grandmother who wrote a lot of stuff down and one that was just like a talker, like a real talker. So it has me thinking about these oral histories and how to like, you know, sink back into them and figure out what lessons are there, how to like revive them into the work that I have, um, that I'm trying to like put forward into the world. And also just like looking at all these like cues. I mean, just to, to see the patterns of like, again, intimacy and connectivity that emerge in 
song for my mm. history and in mm-hmm. food for my history and, and recognize that those things are part of my like cognitive making. And so mm-hmm. maybe leaning into those deeper, like I do a lot of work related to food yeah. um, already, but like leaning into them harder or deeper might also be a great way to open myself up to my own creative potential because it's part of my framing for what it means to feel care, to feel community, to feel black, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, those are things that I'm really into right now um, that have just shown up in classes, but also just been like things I've been chewing on. No, yeah. bad pun, bad pun. <laughs> no, yeah, but well, I was going to say, um, not even just cognitively, like they don't just make you up cognitively. They literally make up your, not just your DNA, but also, um, talking about fermentation and bacteria, they make up your gut. I have a, um, actually my conversation for the podcast with Asia was on, um, microbes and spirituality. And part of that, as we talk about the, um, I think it's Malaysian tradition, like the dairy farmers of Malaysia who passed down dairy cultures to like generationally. And they, it is considered a form of wealth. Um, but like it actually ends up making up your gut bacteria. So you were quite literally making up the next generation and sort of living forward. And I think too, it's, it's part of why I've always, I think really love podcasts too, because it's, it is an oral tradition. Like we're, we're storytelling in a way, um, that, yeah, is using that spoken word. And I, um, I also, interestingly, I was just remembering when you said that, that my grandmother passed away like 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And, uh, I don't have a, I actually don't have a strong connection to the matriarchal matriarchal line of my family, um, for various reasons. And when my grandfather died just a couple of years ago, you know, we inherited all of their stuff. And, um, part of that was all of my grandmother's recipe cards. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I was doing all this fermentation work with Asia at the time. And, uh, so I had started, cooking all these things, you know, like, um, you know, nutritious broths and soups and all this stuff and was cooking all this stuff that I hadn't really ever cooked before. And I hadn't even heard of before, like Greek soups. And I don't think any of our lineage is necessarily Greek, but I went back later to look through the recipe cards of my grandmother and it was like liver pate and Mm. like this Greek soup that I had just started making that I'd never even heard of before. And then saw that she had actually made it before. And so I've been wanting to do some sort of art project that was like taking, it was like for her, it's also like a writ that's a written history is like recipe cards so it's like that intersection of foods and you know written and oral history passed down generationally also that then also makes up our gut bacteria that like we are we are quite literally our ancestors totally Um, totally exactly um yeah i'm i'm remembering a quote it's just like uh from bacteria to dust i need to find it basically because it's killing me but yeah i think i think that the 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 points that you're making i just love i love that this is something that we can talk about because sometimes i present these ideas and people are like you're bananas and i'm like no but for real like this <laughs> no, but is, actually <laughs> but actually yeah but actually and i think that uh one of the cool things about this whole conversation is it also proves to us parts of unseen connectivity that we don't even think about, right? The ways in which we're like inherently tied to one another, whether like it it decenters the like um, importance of this, the brain and the like speech pattern and really talks about like what is happening. There's all kinds of things happening below that part of your body and on your skin, on your face that are, that are, you know, operating in, in even more progressive ways than us. If we want to touch back on the slime mold thing, but, but also tie us to one another. 
Yeah. Well, even just like the recipes too. The recipes yeah. are like a way, I mean, talking about slime mold, you're like passing resources to each other. Like my grandmother literally passed me a resource from a different generation exactly. forward in time to me, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I want to just, I, I, I have this quote in my home yeah. right here. Um, it's by this writer. Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm obsessed with everything that this writer, this writer produces. This is from a compilation called Critical Booch that Lorraine Fournier um, assembled. This writer's name is Shana Agbayani. And the quote is, bacteria are our oldest ancestors. They bring us the techniques and teachings of everlasting balance, resiliency, and community power that beckon futures of regenerative possibility. As stronger strains of antibiotics are developed, strains of antibiotic resistant bacteria emerge even stronger too. And this reminds me of the way that humans, animals, plants, microbes, and any beings we try to control under colonialism and other systems of oppression can very well grow in strength by their own resilience and regenerative magic. And it's not clear in this quote, but she is talking about gut bacteria in this Mm. chapter and talking about the ways that we can nurture through cultural understandings of like the histories of our people and ingesting the food and fermented food, especially of our people can help like mm-hmm. strengthen the gut bacteria that we have. Um, yeah. But I just love the way that it's like tied to ancestry and it's talking about the resilience of like anti-structures and like anti-movements. And, and I think that that's, you know, exciting in the ways that we think about how we're like tied to one another. Maybe there are internal, maybe gut-based ways to pull tenacity and strength into your daily practice to be more involved in your social or political movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these things are both yeah, true and so also real. both theoretic, both theoretical, you know, and I think, yeah, yeah it's exciting. Well, even, I mean, even with like what we're learning scientifically about the connection between like gut and brain connection, but also um, gut and adrenals and like our literal like energy stores and our ability to participate in, you know, organizing or political work um, or really anything purpose work doesn't really matter, um, like is genuinely affected by our generational (laughs) ancestry and our current gut bacteria and all those things. and oh, I was remembering also your that sort of reminded me of your project that was the growing the tree that was from your sort of ancestry yeah. also that isn't native to where you are, but you sort of trick it into thinking it's native so that yeah. then you can ingest something that doesn't have all of the sustainability bad side effects. Um, right. You've really, really cool. done your homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Um, yeah, that that project was so fun. I mean, that that showed in a bunch of different places in Toronto in the States. And yeah, that the whole, the, the initial conception of that was like a challenge basically from the like curator. Um, it's first showing was in a band gallery in Toronto, which is like a black gallery. Mm-hmm. And so the like challenge was to say like, what is like food sovereignty look like? What does it mean to like, think about specifically to think about, um, how we like, there is a nuance to the conversation around, like food justice that is particular to people of color in ways that is different from other people. And, and you know, it, it, it shows up in, in non-POC culture too, but I guess like for me, and I know for my parents, um, it is a active like resistance and resilience to con- consume food from our culture mm-hmm. as a way to preserve that culture yeah, in a society like a that isn't modeling that culture. Anti-assimilation you know? sort of active exactly. resistance. Yeah, exactly. Like chicken foot stew and the like oxtail and the whole like, uh, you know, uh, 
I'm, I like grew up in a really white small town and like the oddities of that food was mm. just things I was like, you know, trying to like dodge matrix style as conversational topics. <laughs> but um, yeah, the it's a it's an act of like, you know, preservation, cultural preservation. Mm. But I mean, it doesn't contribute very well to the like broad conversation around like food justice because these foods are from super far away most of the time. Like the fruits that my family like to consume or like even just like, think of thinking of like the baked goods, but like the vegetables, the animal products, like oftentimes these are from like elsewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of people who with African descent and like Jamaican descent, like West Indian descent, like just so many folks who are from tropical regions, I think there is a little bit of friction inside because you're like, a lot of harm went into bringing this over here, Mm -hmm, (laughs) but mm -hmm. this is also the way that I invest in my culture and pass that culture on to the people in my, in my world. Right. It's a little like the pecan reference, right? Like you've been sort of forcibly removed from somewhere else. And now apparently you're supposed to eat something that's around you, but it's not indigenous to you and your culture. And right. Yeah. It would take a lot of resources to get something to a tree from another continent. (laughs) Totally. And, and a lot of harm for people who look like me, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of, you know, there was like a moment a couple of years ago that was really talking about the harm that goes into transporting avocados from like, Mm -hmm. um, like Central America to here. And just like all of the people of color who are working in like extraordinarily violent circumstances to make sure that we can have avocados all year round, you know? And like, if avocados, they're not inherently tied to like my cultural background, but if they are tied to your cultural background, then like, what does that mean? What you're grappling with that friction in your head. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so the challenge was like, how do we imagine our way out of like being complicit in that like harm? And so the solution for me um, and a few collaborators was to imagine a future generation of people of color of like Caribbean descent, people of color who were also like super like I want to say like techno crafty (laughs) that were just like able to like whip up in a lot of ways, the people like myself who built these exhibitions, we are that we are living that right now where we can just like whoop, like code and build and, and structurally form um, like these tanks that would trick a plant into thinking it was in its home country. So this tree tank piece um, through APIs <clears throat> to the web, like API ties to the weather network websites, basically like figured out what Jamaica's weather patterns were. And it was like, oh, it's humid there right now. Oh. So there's like huge, like these little humidifiers that would go off or like it's light there right now. So the lights would be on. And when it's nighttime there, the lights would be off and it would Holy just, cow. I didn't even realize perfect. it was that, but I thought it was just sort of yeah. like, here's the general climate, but you actually right. were like mimicking the real life, like climate yeah. that was happening. That's so rad. Yeah. This is like an early piece of mind that like worked almost all the time. I guess it's not really like I don't need to tell you all that, but no, <laughs> like, you're fine. Just claim you it. Know, it's like not a perfect uh, exhibition, but but yeah, the the point was to like through tech actually like f- like physically mimic it as like a prototype. And uh, this idea was actually robbed from me by a little mm-hmm. technology company that started releasing these cabinets that look 99% like my cabinets for plants to grow in that mimicked the weather that they originally from so you know it's it's I didn't want to turn it into a company but it is people on one week of the year like in 2018 people in droves sent me the link to this company I was like oh my god (laughs) it was like hundreds (laughs) of links like I know um but yeah you know art maybe influencing stuff I don't know um but yeah it uh it 
it was it was a really fun thought experiment because um it, with some functionality and that's my kind of favorite kind of art piece that's like mm. hey here's a novel idea that might unpin us from some of the ways that we're feeling fictitious about our life as people mm. of color but also it kind of works and like this micro prototype could exist in the future and like does now like you know but i mean like it it's fun to be a kind of artist that could also show some functional pieces. There's all these mm -hmm. studies that show that if you're imagining futures and you're like working together to speculate on the future, if you can build an artifact of that future today, people are more likely to like lean into the possibility and the plausibility and actually do work to get there right. um, um, and be closer to that future. And so to be a technologically driven artist, it's kind of fun because you can, you have some capacity to show people what's possible because of the way that we center tech, you know? Yeah, that is the sort of difference to me between like writing and doing actual like built work, you know, that y you can prototype some type something where like when I write about something, it's just like, well, that's a cute idea. <laughs> and I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But like, yeah, there is a and sorry, not to like diminish it at all. But um, there is something really cool about, like you're saying, being uh, an artist who can also create prototypes that, yeah, show us yeah. that it can be done. One of the cool things about writing is that you can like articulate a social structure that seems mm -hmm. really plausible, which is hard to do with like beeps and boops and tech, yeah. you know, like some <laughs> cabinets, sod, and, yeah, cabinets yeah. and servos and whatever and fog yeah. machines. It's a little bit harder to do than to like Adrian Marie Brown style lay out a whole system that could be better than yeah, what we have from a, yeah. from a people-based practice, you know? Yeah. yeah. I was going to say too, to sort of cap that note, maybe circling back a little bit, like you were talking about like the next networks we don't even see, you know, and all of this stuff. And, you know, even just that like, you know, Asia teaches me fermenting and then I yeah. go on to talk about the metaphor there and you also know her and you know Kendra right. and then you guys are teaching this class together and then you go on yeah. to do such and such, you know, like that there is sort of this like invisible network of, you know, like work and sharing of resources and passing, you know, on information and data so that that can be shared and moved along sort right. of deal that's like also happening at a social level. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really nice point. And also it ties back to some of the ways that like we're building these like little webs of community that are trying to achieve similar things. It's like, mm -hmm. It's really, again, like a resilience practice, right? Because it is, it is, it feels insurmountable to do these if in your head you're doing it alone, right? Yeah. Um, but it is beautiful to have, I mean, one of the, one of the lovely natures of this podcast alone is to like be like a central node of like many different people right. branching out to do these things. And we need those, we need those kinds of structures. We need those art exhibitions that bring artists together who are thinking about that. We're mm -hmm. like reading compilations like Octavia's Brood that are, you know, all of these people and then they like link through this one thing and that one thing right. goes on, you know, and that's, right. that's really nice. Okay. So to finish out who right now, are you just really love, like is just inspiring the crap out of you. That's like mashing together really cool things right now. Oh my gosh. Well, you already spoke to him. Like Tyler Thrasher is, uh, yeah. oh my God. Like couldn't I have like, they're just behind me. I'm like leaning the wrong way. There's like one of his night trees, yes. the glowing ones. And I have oh, his, nice. um, I have his little like crystallized snail shell right here too. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's not easy to get these things to Canada, Tyler. <clears throat> oh, but um, <laughs> but anyways, I think, uh, you know, his work is really, is so dynamic and it also ties, you know, we could just talk forever about this, but it also just ties to the, uh, the like deep recesses of my soul that are connected to gardening and growing mm. food. Like my mm -hmm. parents are avid gardeners and like, mm you know, seed collection is really important and like, yeah, just 
have like hundreds Speaking of memories. Speaking of ancestors and passing things down, like seeds are a dope version of that. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So I think that like, you know, that if I had a dollar for every time my grandmother would be like eating a mango and get to the pit and be like, mangoes aren't the same that they used to be like, I, like you know what I mean? Like, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what a mango is in like, you know, a loving way. Like, yeah. um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think Tyler's work is like super futuristic by happenstance almost because I don't know that I hear him talk a little bit about the like futurism web that he's just mm -hmm. like nestled into mm -hmm. um it's like inventing species and like doing mm -hmm. a lot of things that are like showing up in my like N.K. Jemison books mm -hmm. and it's so cool to see that like alive in a human being and like mm -hmm. I, I I like to think that maybe there are people who look at my work and see it as like a, a living version of like maybe what other other speculations of people of color might do. And I have so yeah. many people who I know who are that for me too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and speaking of seeds, one other person whose work really like just always inspires me is Christina Battle. She's a, a, a black artist out of Alberta. <clears throat> and she, her practice is very seed driven, looking at seed constellations, seed ga uh, galaxies, looking at like mm -hmm. uh, inherited lineages of seeds and like planting mm -hmm. and gardening together. And so, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I think that stuff is so exciting and also so necessary now as we like really need to be in contact with like soil and land and earth mm -hmm. to like remind mm -hmm. ourselves of our like purpose and existence in this pretty, yeah. pretty bleak atmosphere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's so uh, or, many connections there, like food in yeah. general. I mean, like you're saying gardening also, I was just thinking like that is also a form of art. Yeah. Like, you know, it is a built art, like you're talking about like growing a food and, um, co-collaboration with, you know, nature and, yeah. um, yeah, getting to know your land and all of those things. Totally. The land stewardship component of that is imperative to how we sort of move out of this, um, era with new wisdom because people are becoming more connected to the space around them. We have no choice. I mean, we're, a lot of people have been stuck at home for the last two years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so if we can, if we can graduate out of this pandemic with some more, food and land stewardship understanding. I think that's like mm -hmm. a huge game. We've never had like a full societal chapter where maybe we all reinvest in that. Um, uh, my parents talk about it all the time, but like other people must be gardening because there are less bugs and aphids around. Like there are less <laughs> bugs eating our plants. We're sharing <laughs> the bugs. Other people must be gardening. Yeah. Um, and awesome. yeah, I think, um, so yeah, Christina's work really inspires me. And then I guess the last person whose work is like just ever, ever inspiring is Netta Bomani. And their work, um, you know, just thinking about the colonial histories of hardware and talking about mm. the ways in which like circuit boards and the design of circuit boards came from like slave ship design and looking at those two tied mm. histories. And it's like deeply uncomfortable because mm. of the way that we glorify technology and glorify circuitry and hardware has especially this sort of like hyper nuanced skill to be able to do because it requires mm. like an understanding of electrons and code mm. and assemblage and and I think that you know we're still not really comfortable talking about the like this this the slave the slave ship and like all of these like objects these really big objects that are like tied to the colonial histories like we're there's comfort comfort isn't the right word, but we're leaning it. We've, we've learned to lean into the topics of like slavery, but like these sort of like really technically designed systems, like 
you know, um, chattel collars and like the slave ship, these objects that were like also tied to like imperial design. Um, we're not like, that doesn't come up. It's not as comfortable to talk about the reality of how that is, is in part how we know how to design like this object that we're, that we're speaking on right now, these laptops and these um, technologies. And I just think Netta is just completely unearthing all of that. Um, uh, their work is like uh, a lot of their publications are called dark matter. And so it's mm. certainly worth diving into this like spectacular mm. combinations of things that are mutually uncomfortable because of the ways that we like shy away from one topic and really like love another topic. Yeah. Yeah. There's just like a lifetime of reading I need to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, here's, um, oh, I was going to ask too, just like personally, uh, do you follow um, It's Holly on Instagram? I don't, maybe, I mean, I don't think so. Uh, it's what Holly, a joy maybe? she has brought to my life. Yeah, okay. she's a, like just um, a chef and uh, sort of, I I think became sort of known through like TV um, cooking competitions or something, but mm. has like really made a place for her, herself, sort of like Tyler on Instagram. So has this huge following and like watching her stuff is just like such a, like she just is such a joy to see, but she also cooks oxtail and like all these things you were mm. talking about that. Yeah. Um, I was like, Oh, she needs to follow Holly if she yeah. doesn't. Cause Holly's amazing um, oh and gorgeous and just like the most amazing. She seems like the most amazing human. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like here's hoping for the future. I'm like, I was just imagining too the like someday when there's like some speculative art, like a maybe a sci fi movie created where like Tyler actually gets to create like an entire set of yeah. like crystallized bugs and totally, you know, like something we can experientially like walk into or like see oh, yeah. on screen or something would just be so fantastic. Like a oh whole field. Could you imagine just like, I want him to be like, I mean, funded sort of like, I mean, CJ Hendry and these like really large installation artists yeah. that you see um um that like you just see like a field of glowing yes. you know flowers or whatever oh my god absolutely yeah. yeah i i could not want that for him enough i want like writers to write him into all of these like things that just get like where's the tyler thrasher children's book you know like yeah. i want <laughs> i want like all of this all of this content because i think that yeah i think that he there's also this like magical property that he is occupying. Magical is not the right word. It's just like, it's just intimate. It's just vulnerable mm -hmm. to talk about like how, you know, we also have to be human and care about each other. And we can only do this mm -hmm. in community. And like, this is about passing on things to like other generations and feeling playful and imaginative. And mm -hmm. I think that that stuff, again, talking about things that aren't allowed to exist together, like, you know, just the like whimsy and science I don't know. It's not that yeah. it's not super common, you know, and I think that that's so wonderful um, mm -hmm. that he brings that to us like, you know, every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. part of why I mean, originally, of course, I wanted to talk to him about just science and art, you know, mashed together because that's just what he does. But um, yeah, I, I think everyone talks to him about that. And I just I love the part of the, like his vulnerability around talking about trauma and his past yes. and yeah. um, how important it is to understand the intersections of trauma with all of those things, totally. I think is um, so great that he does that. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah. Well, anything else, Ashley, before we close up? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, <clears throat> um, yeah, we've talked about so much. I feel like we've just like, you know, all over. Yeah. Like just 
you know, shot through so many things. I think that like, I guess to like hype some of the stuff that would be coming out at this time, I mean, I'm working, I'm working with the SFPC to continue launching iterations of the course writing, reading into the past, writing into the future. And so mm -hmm. those will be made available for registration in the fall, in the fall and the summer and the spring. So there's all these opportunities, I think, to, yeah. to dive in if that's like a place, like an intimate care and knowledge, reading and writing and, and, you know, centering science, but from the Black, Indigenous, person of color perspective, if that feels mm -hmm. meaningful, I'd love to see people there. I'm also working on some VR pieces for the first time, which is like high key stressful for me because I've like for a long time secretly been like proudly anti-VR and now I'm just like somebody was like do you want to do an e ARP a VR piece rather for Black Futures and I was like damn yeah, yeah I think I do yeah that's um, what I'm talking about I'm like sort of anti like I have a tendency to be anti but like I went to the California Science Museum when I went to a science conference and at the end of 2019 and it was the first time I sat down in a VR and it was like um it was just a uh, space flight from earth to Mars and yeah. which sounds so cheesy, but like that alone, I was like, that was wild. Like that just <laughs> right. blew my mind. So like, the, like thinking of the things that you could do with VR is super cool. Totally. Yeah. The headsets. I mean, I just, yeah, <laughs> I'm like happily struggling through it because I'm like, this is cool. This feels good. But also it's like, you know, when you get sort of a high on your, on your horse about like things and then, and then you like, you have to like, do that you're like oh okay well backtrack yeah exactly yeah. um yeah. yeah so there's that so that I have an exhibition coming out I have a piece in an exhibition coming out at um Trinity Square Video uh which is a gallery in Toronto on like black futures um mm. which I'm really stoked about and um have a piece and a series of work coming out with black uh backflash magazine um which I'm also really stoked about and then you know the google feature on my work and about slime mold is um, either would have just come out or is coming out depending on when this podcast is released. Yeah. And so I'll make sure to link to it regardless. Yeah. So even if it comes out after we publish, I'll um, I'll go back and add it if I see Thank it. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, I, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to turn out. I hope it's good because I'm mentioning it, but it's in promotion for uh, this branch of women tech makers, which is this like massive org helping a lot of women get into technology in various ways, scholarship mm -hmm. and skill building and networking, they are launching black women tech makers for the first time. And me and mm -hmm. just three others are, are being featured as part of like a promotional campaign to, campaign to demonstrate what kind of technologies exist or like, what are we imagining when we think about like black mm -hmm. women in tech and how are we maybe, mm -hmm. you know, breaking some of the molds about just coding in a dark room. There's more exciting ways to be involved in tech than that, you know? Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for all of your time. I'm so glad we finally got to chat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've had all these little nodes that connect to you, but I've not actually had direct contact with you. So it's super fun to actually get to talk to you. Yeah. And thank you for your great questions and just all of the, it's so exciting to talk to people who are like deeply excited by these subjects because you just, I mean, I didn't even have to like bring up all the things that were fun about like the stuff that I care about because you're already like into it. And I love having conversations with people like that. Just like multi-dimensional thinkers yeah. is really a lot of fun. Yeah. There is truly like no end to, I like it's very difficult not to continue in this conversation yeah. just because, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, sci-fi alone, I just like, it's, it's one of those things where I, I get so geeked out about it. I sort of, my brain just sort of like collapses in on itself totally. I'm like I don't even know how to articulate words I'm like there's just something so cool about um 
yeah yeah like I said sort of a prophetic tradition of being like oh no we and it's so relevant I mean it's always been relevant but you know we live now so it feels (laughs) super relevant just to be like you know um like you said, I mean, I think especially around the murder of George Floyd, that like there was just so much um, opportunity to just be stuck in grief and yeah. um, sad and dark and go like, when will this ever end? Yeah. Um, and sci-fi. Yeah, it's it's cool also just to hear that like it's real that when you like that 87 percent or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, that the the stat is mm-hmm. about like most of our technology being imagined, it's like well then cool. Like if I write something, Mm. the opportunity to actually like genuinely influence the future is real. That's not just like a maybe that's right. And it's a, it's a superpower that is like afforded to, I think the wrong demographic. And so, (laughs) you know, I think that that's, that's, that's the part that's like so cool in your, in your like this and that, like, like matching. It's like, there's an, in that, in that knowledge, there's no argument that says that like science and art are disconnected because that proves that Mm -hmm. it's completely connected because if we have like all this creative writing that becomes real you know then like there is no questioning about the impact of art because we are living it right now all the time through the very means in which we're talking at this moment you know right yeah right and the countless times i'm sure that like literal scientists even outside of technology quote unquote have been like watching a work of art and went oh my god i I hadn't even thought about that as an explanation of the nature of the universe. And now I see dark matter in Mm. an entirely different way. And I'm going to try this experiment. Like we have no idea the ways that like art has influenced scientific breakthrough and how science has influenced art, you know? Um, So yeah, it's, it's so cool that it feels like an act of like at once, like resistance and participation and engagement and create like, creation not just of like oh look at this cool art piece i'm gonna sell in a gallery but like literally creating the future yeah and it it makes this new form of transmission to your constellation as you as an ancestor right like because octavia butler is no longer with us but her work lives on in the technology around Mm -hmm. us in the workshops that we Mm -hmm. host in the conversations that we hold right so there's something really cool about writing science fiction as an act of ancestor right to be like Mm -hmm. well you know i'm going to put this idea out into the universe and maybe it will be something that does live in the pocket of people to come you know and so i think that that's like it's a really fun it's it's really fun to think about these things as like transmissions to the future and and to think of yourself mm-hmm. in that way as like a a writing based ancestor of people you've not yet met you know yeah or even yeah when I found those um the like recipe cards for my grandmother mm-hmm. I was also thinking about just like yeah again the like it's not just metaphor that my yeah. grandmother has passed down you know her gut bacteria to me yeah. Um, you know, if she's been eating those things and now I'm eating those things, you know, like those things literally transcend time. And, um, I was trying to think of a way that like, um, you know, I was fermenting, I was doing, I was making kraut a lot and I was like, kraut is actually like a really cool art form. Like you could use it as a print. So I like, I was like slicing cabbage in half and dipping it in black ink and then pressing it on translucent paper. And I was like, I was trying to experiment with like how you could show, um, generational gut bacteria you know like that yes um on translucent paper i could do like layers and like if you could light through it that it could like show some form of like physical embodiment of like the way that gut bacteria is passed down generationally um 
so yeah, I, I just started like experimenting with a lot of that, like in physical, like art form yeah. to be like, how could I use her recipe cards? How could I use like fermentation to sort of like actually show this idea of, yeah, us passing things to each other through time. Totally. Totally. There are a few artists who are thinking about ways of doing this in, um, sourdough starters that have been inherited like generation after generation. Mm -hmm. Like, can you map, Mm -hmm. is it worth like taking a, like, you know, microscope sample of that now? So that like in 10 years, when that gets passed on, like take another sample. And this is like a multi-generational art project, obviously, but how, how cool, like the, the, that there are like, there are these things that you can eat that also resemble the gut bacteria of your ancestors, but they're also like the thing, you know, like the sourdough mm-hmm. starter that has been around for like three generations, like creepily sitting in the back of your fridge, as my parents would say about the yeah. one that I have in my home. But yeah, my grandmother started a, um, a black cake. This is like a, it's like a fermented fruit cake basically in black in a uh, West Indian culture. And it's, it's like, it's gotta be about 27 years old. And I have like a part of it that I have to like, you know, add uh, alcohol and dried fruit to, to sustain it so that I can like once a year make this black cake for holidays. But it's just like this thing that me and my cousins all have from our grandmother. So it's, it's like, they're also the thing. There's the like emulation of it in gut bacteria that is like biologically the same. But then some people also have that like old jar of, you know, maybe like hooch that your family has been yeah. holding on to or saving, or maybe like an old, old jar of pickles that just continues to be fed. And those things are really mm-hmm. cool too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can pass brine down, yeah. like all those things. Yeah. Super cool. Okay. Anyways, well, yes, to respect yes, your time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> could do this for a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Thanks again for your time. So fun to get to meet you. Yeah. And um, from a distance and time, uh, no, you have a fermentation friend oh. and all these other sci-fi nerdy things that, uh, we're both obsessed with. Yeah. So. Same to you. It's been yeah. so lovely connecting. It does feel like we're just sitting talking in the same room, which is nice. <laughs> Isn't Ashley so amazing? I truly, I wanted that conversation to go on forever. I'm so excited to be able to publish it for you guys. Um, one correction I wanted to make, Utimia Montoya Cruz, who I mentioned in this episode, actually said words are spells, not words are prayers. I think both are kind of an accurate uh, truth. So uh, yeah, take that for what you will. But I did want to make sure to note that. Otherwise, you can find Ashley online at ashleyjanelewis.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter at Ashley Jane Lewis. You can find those links, show notes from our conversation, and links to everything else we talked about by going to her episode on my site at thisplusthat.com slash episodes. Thisplusthat.com is also where you can sign up for the This Plus That newsletter and my texting community, two places where, where you'll get more behind the scenes, related content, and personal insights from me. One thing about the texting community, in case by the time I publish this, I'm no longer running that, know that I'm currently in a transition phase where I'm thinking about opening up something like a mining network or something else. I've just been trying to figure out like ways that we can actually build community and I can talk to you differently than I get to on this podcast and then differently than I'm even able even able to in the newsletter. So if you don't find the texting community there, just check out my website. You can see where to sign up for the newsletter. You can see what I'm running now. And if that includes something like a mighty network where we can all gather and have conversation or whatever else I have built uh, at the time of publishing this episode, this is how this goes. You just never know, like recording these has to come pretty far before you actually publish them. So uh, I'm not quite sure what that's gonna look like, but you get the point. Go to my website. 
figure out all the things that you can get in on. And I can't wait to actually, uh, you know, have fun with you in all of the communities that I create and having these conversations. But otherwise, you can also find me elsewhere online, of course, at this plus that pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you feel grateful for this work, you can drop me a tip or become a monthly supporter by going to my website and clicking on mutual aid. I consider your gratitude toward me and my gift to you and doing this work types of mutual aid and supporting what we're all up to and making us come more alive in the world. So whether you support me financially or not, you get equal access to all of my content. But if you feel inspired to give to me financially, those are a couple of ways that I open myself up to also receiving your gifts in return. And if you haven't yet, of course, please rate the show five stars on your favorite app. Give the show a review and tell all of your friends about it if they like mashing weird things together and talking about the nature of the universe as much as I do and getting existential and deep and complex and talking about nuance and all of those things. (laughs) Um, As always, of course, I also want to acknowledge that the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute tribes are the original stewards of the land where I record these conversations. And I also recognize the history of displacement of the indigenous tribes and nations who call Colorado home, as which is also my home, as well as the black labor forcibly used to work that land in the wake of that displacement. And I am consistently always in my individual life doing work to make sure that saying that out loud is not just performance, but it's actually lived out in building real relationship with indigenous folks, BIPOC folks, the land I live on, and learning the bioregional state of everything that's around me, right? Those are all ways, or at least part of the ways that I work to make this a practice and not just a performance. Uh, But I also want to, yeah, thank you for being in relationship with me. And I think this is one way that we build community and we also build um, connection. And uh, I hope that I continually just speak to, uh, I don't know, ways that I think that we are I don't know, as a society that we live separately in ways that I want to hope to help us build more and more belief and practice around the fact that we are all deeply, deeply connected, right? That's part of this plus that. We're not only this, we're not only that. You aren't this and I'm not that. Like we are are deeply connected and that's how the whole thing works. And when it doesn't, we get sick and we get broken and shit seems to fall apart pretty well. So... Anyway, I'm just randomly uh, rambling about all those things, but really all of it is to say thank you as always for listening. I am such a fan of Ashley's work. I hope that you now are such a fan of her as well and that this conversation was intriguing to you as it was to me. As Ashley said, I wish we could have just like sort of sat around together in a room in person and chatted about these things until the end of time, because that's part of the magic of what she and I do, I think, in imagining new futures is, um, and, and, you know, specifically her work as a black feminist science fiction person and thinking about Afrofuturism is that like, part of that magic is the ability to bend time. And this conversation was one where it felt like we bent time. Because we were talking about all these things that we love. And yeah, I hope that's how it felt for you too. So thank you for joining until next time.